0: Hello, and welcome back to the Miss Amanda Chen Show. We're now in season two of the 100 Masked Men series, where we anonymously interview different men from all around the world about what masculinity means to them, gender expectations, and how that affects how they interact with women. This month, we're taking a special focus on men's mental health, sponsored by Tether, the world's first online peer-to-peer support community connecting men for open and honest conversations about life. This week, I'm interviewing men that are challenging gender norms with a special focus on fatherhood. Masked man number 41 is the foster dad. As a man that was brought up without strong parental figures, he found himself navigating through parenthood himself when he was left alone to raise a 12-year-old girl. We get into depth about the foster care system and how he's been able to give women space to be heard and understood. I think the most interesting aspect of this conversation is my own struggle in challenging gender norms. I'm really quick to state the way things are, but how often do we have a conversation about doing things differently? I was reminded about that today, and I'm really grateful for it. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, I grew up as the youngest in the family of three children, two older sisters, my parents were divorced when I was six, so um, yeah, one of my sisters basically, as she started to realize what the family dynamic was, just would run away as often as she could. That was the oldest, and then the middle child, uh, my other sister, she was the one who basically became my little guardian angel, my tutor, my best friend, and my confidant, and we would basically just share all of our life struggles together, we saw each other go through everything, and we would experience most of the same things because we we stuck it out together. My dad, unfortunately, was the only breadwinner in my family. So he would work 12 to 16 hours a day, which meant no one really knew what was going on when we were with my mom, and my mom was the neglectful and abusive parent. So it just uh, made for an interesting Childhood dynamic.
0: Okay. That's interesting to be basically spending your entire childhood with another sibling. What was your concept of, I guess, being a kid versus being an adult? Was that confusing for you at that time since you're growing up and you don't know the difference, really?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, when you're a kid, you assume that adults have like this God mode where they know everything. Uh, You assume that they can do whatever they want. They have unlimited resources. And that they know exactly what you're feeling and experiencing at all times, which isn't the case. So, um, you know, fast forward into the future when I'm a foster parent, (laughs) all of a sudden I realize, oh my God, my parents, they were just people.
0: (laughs) Isn't that crazy?
1: (laughs) They're just kids that got old. It's it's strange.
0: Yeah, like we just have no idea what we're doing ever. And it's funny how we kind of place that concept of other people knowing their shit before we did. And then you realize later on, it's everyone's on the same page. Exactly. So how did you get into becoming a foster parent? What was that process? And what were you doing before? And how has that shaped your relationships afterward?
1: Well, um, before foster parenting, I was engaged and I had a semi-successful acting career And when I wasn't doing that, I was working in very small, like odd jobs. I worked at Home Depot as a flooring and window treatment specialist. And I worked for Papa John's Pizza as a delivery guy. But to be a a foster parent, you need a certain level of income. So when the opportunity came, or rather when the need became present, I, I knew I had to have higher income. So I applied for a job in surgical logistics, which I had very little experience in, but I had a great employment track record. They gave me a shot. So I started a new job like a week before becoming a foster parent. <laughs> that was how I, I made the criteria.
0: That's crazy. So how did that opportunity come to you? Because you're saying that that foster parenting was an opportunity for you?
1: Well, that is a loaded question. I think it started because I was very active in my community. Like I taught acting workshops to kids and I taught martial arts classes to my old high school. And I was just, I was a very active member of my community. And so I knew all of the children, like I work on my own cars. So some of the kids would watch me and I would teach them what I'm doing, you know? Uh, I always enjoyed the concept of teaching younger people what you're doing so that they're more equipped for the future and have more options as far as what they do for a living or what they think they can do for a living. And one day the police called me and they said, hi, Mr. My name. And um, they said, we have a a weird uh, call. Don't worry. You know, you're not in trouble. Nothing bad has happened to you or anyone in your family, but we have a 12-year-old girl here and her parents were found face down, drugged out in the lobby of their apartment building with the young lady crying. And the neighbors called us in and there's no next of kin. Uh, There's nobody in the immediate family that we can reach out to. And this kid uh, a couple of her friends and the neighbors all know you because you dropped the kid off to school and the parents forgot to pick him up a couple of times. And, you know, cause I, I had a niece the same age in that kid's school. So they asked if, uh, well, this is how we phrased it. He said, we're not really sure what to do with her. She's probably going to go into foster care or adoption. Do you want her?
2: Wow.
1: <laughs> this is a small town. So that's how the cops talk. But I basically just felt my heart start racing and I was like, uh, <laughs> oh God. um, okay, what what do I have to do? And he's like, well, she's here now crying. Um, so if you could come down to the station, uh, we'll, we'll help collect a few of her things. And, um, yeah, then we're going to need you to do some paperwork and obviously need to get you licensed, but you're the only person she could think of. And, you know, we know who you are. So we thought we'd give you a call and just shot in the dark sea. So it was a very weird experience, very unusual turn of events. But then literally right there and then they had a social worker come meet me at the police station and say, hey, I'm with uh, social services. This is what you would have to do right now. This is a temporary thing. So it would be for like a week while the transition happens into the foster system. And then once the ball's rolling, it becomes permanent.
0: Wow, that's crazy. How old were you?
1: I was 28. I was too young. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're never really an adult, but at 28, I thought I had the world figured out until I became a
0: foster parent and realized I knew nothing. Um, <laughs> That's so interesting because like a 12 year old girl is, you know, a teenager, which is probably, you know, another level of parenting in comparison to like a newborn, which, you know, if you followed your age peer group of people that were around late 20s early 30s they would just be popping babies now right and then you here you are with like a teenage girl so how is that dynamic like I guess since you've already met her before I guess you already established that kind of connection or do you think that it went back to your childhood when you guys were just like peers again like there wasn't that um distance between adult versus child
1: well both I think the most important part of the dynamic was the fact that I already knew the kid and I kind of already knew what was going on. And they knew my family. So when they were around us, it wasn't some bizarre, strange, and alien experience. It was at least somewhat familiar, which I think is why community needs to be way more involved with the raising of children. It needs to be a village and not just two parents on their own against the world. But I think the. The shift, because the first two weeks, everyone was just in shock. No one really knew what to do, how to speak, how to interact. It was like, "Are you hungry do you do you want to mm-hmm. sleep in the upstairs bedroom or the downstairs?" You know, it was very <laughs> uncomfortable. So I think what what bridged the gap and what really opened communication and made us feel like a family was taking walks and one-on-one conversations where I literally would say okay I'm not going to say anything I'm just going to listen and when you're done talking tap the ground next to me and then I'll respond
2: mm. so that you
1: can get everything out because I knew one thing that was going on based on the fact that the kid was stuttering is that they were always interrupted so I just let her talk and I let her talk and I let her talk and you know she would try to hide back crying and I'd say no 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 you, you don't have to do that like it's healthy to cry. It's good for you. It makes you feel better. And, you know, just teaching her the very basic level of communication that we're all supposed to be privileged to or privy to helped a lot because she just had no voice for so long. So then after that, it became a matter of, all right, well, you're still not comfortable with this level of communication. And, you know, I'm not some cool adult. I'm still kind of a kid too. So like, I would share like, well, hey, I don't know about this and this and this. So you're going to have to tell me, you know, like cooking. I thought I was a great cook. She did not. (laughs) So I think me being a bad cook actually made her feel more comfortable around me because she's like, oh, he sucks at stuff too. Okay, cool. So like there was one time where I bought a bunch of ingredients for food that I love to cook. I spent like $250 on groceries that day. And she didn't like it and she didn't know how to say it. So she woke up in the middle of the night, opened the refrigerator and left it open so that all the food went bad. And when I asked her in the morning, I was like, oh my gosh, did you go downstairs or is my refrigerator broken? She's like, oh no. (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay. And I kind of knew what was going on, but at the same time, it's like, you don't want to yell at a kid whose family was just yanked out from under them. So we eventually had the conversation and she admitted that she just hated my cooking. And I was like, all right, well, what do you like? And then things got better. I don't know if that answered your question. There's (laughs) so much, so many memories associated with each thought um, when you spend any amount of time with a kid. So.
0: Was, was most of that parenting just you in the household or did you have any support? Like that was a social worker also involved.
1: Oh my goodness. Well, I w- I should say I was engaged when it started
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I was not engaged by the time it ended. My fiance at the time did not want to be a foster parent
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I wasn't really given time to have a deep conversation about that with them. So they eventually told me, they were like, Oh, um, like I didn't sign up for this and you know, your life was hard enough to stomach Mm. without this because i used to be what they call a fixer psychologically where i would try and fix everybody's problems for them Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and she loved it when it was for her but when i would help other people she'd say you're too nice (laughs) um so that was one of the straws that broke the camel's back so she left me and the poor kid experienced that and thought it was her fault yeah that was that was a rough week. But social services would have three different people come visit us every week. They would have the case manager visit. Then they would have a social services like psychiatrist come in and check in with the kid, like a therapist basically. and then they would send you two therapy sessions with a different therapist. So we'd have like a family therapy, a one on one therapy for the kid, and the social worker. And I thought this was actually not great for the kid because it would make her relive and re-explain all of the things that are triggering her and making her upset three times a week instead of helping her to grow and move past it. Uh, So for me, that was a criticism that I had of the system. I'm like, you guys should be talking to the adults about this and letting the kids like be kids. But that's just my opinion.
0: Mm, Interesting. That's crazy. That there was some there's so much activity around the kid and the development of the kid, but then not so much about the actual parenting, which is oh, well, I had I, had
1: I had training. They made me oh, spend okay. uh, they made me spend six months while foster parenting while the kid was at school. I had to take time off work and go to a building and train for six months.
2: Okay. Um,
1: so that was quite intensive. It was twice a week. And they were three to five hour classes, depending on the day. So there is a lot of training that goes into it. And they crammed it all in for me. Normally you get much more time and you have to wait forever before a kid is assigned to you and they see if you're a good match. This was a very weird circumstance, Um, but yeah. And then I had to go see a therapist too, that they signed me up for to do check-ins and they'd like evaluate me every week. So no wow. time was really our own, which okay. is kind of, yeah, it, it put a strain on the, the home dynamic because I just wanted to see this kid thrive and have fun and hang out with their friends. And often there were opportunities where we couldn't, she couldn't go to the birthday party. She had therapy. She couldn't go to the birthday party. She had another therapy or mm-hmm. we couldn't have friends over because you have to get them cleared through social services first. So it was really hard. Eventually, we got like five people cleared. So she was allowed to have five friends individually come and hang out. But they really don't make it easy on the parents to give the kids a normal experience.
0: Yeah, because don't you kind of feel like you're a project for everybody rather than like living your own life? Oh, yeah. Right?
1: It it very much felt like some kind of social experiment.
0: So... What would you say you learned the most about youth or parenting through that exercise that surprised you the most? And what would you say that you learned about yourself that surprised you?
1: Well, I would say something I didn't expect to learn was just how strong children are. Like I thought my childhood was like one in a billion Mm -hmm where most people had this great normal upbringing and their parents were really supportive and talked to them and valued their opinion and then i had this kid come into my life who had a very similar set of experiences to my own and um it was heavy it it, it almost felt like i was watching my childhood happen again but like mm-hmm. if one thing would have been different it would have been the child protective services would have helped and so watching this kid process all of the pain and realize that her parents were just these fallible broken human beings and then seeing her try to hide her pain from everyone to be polite it it just made me realize how strong she was for one but also how how soon children are forced into adulthood it just really broke my heart because she wouldn't want to say what's bothering her because she knew if it got back to her parents that it would hurt their feelings. And that's really heavy. Um, mm-hmm. And it made me think of you know how strong my sister was when she was taking care of me as a kid because she was two years older than me. And she would sacrifice food if it meant that I was full instead of still hungry at the end of a meal. I mean, no kid should ever have to think about that. But these two women, these little Girls, who weren't even women yet, were both making these selfless decisions at their own expense because they loved and cared about people who couldn't possibly reciprocate, who couldn't possibly give them what they needed. It just made me realize the the true nature of humanity, which is sacrificial love. And I don't think people talk about that enough anymore, but it's in all of us. That's the true love that we all seek is that self-sacrificial love, that love that says, you matter more to me than I do. And here I was seeing it in this kid who was being bounced around and couldn't even see her parents because they'd made so many huge mistakes and she still wanted to spare their feelings in case work got back to them. And then that just totally, like in that, I saw my sister who Dropped out of extracurriculars, who didn't spend time with their friends, who literally would eat less just to make sure I was okay. So it was just like those are the moments that really get mm-hmm. you. Well, they they quiet you. You just start listening and thinking more.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how humans can surprise you in yeah. in crazy ways. Uh, and then what what did you learn about yourself? That surprised
1: yourself the most. Oh, well, I learned all of my shortcomings, I would say, because <laughs> when you parent, you realize how stupid you are. <laughs> so for one thing, raising a girl, like they have this uh, mm-hmm. phrase, uh, like a daughter dad versus a, a son dad. Daughter dads are different. I actually spoke to a girl I dated longer cared about a lot of my own personal attributes, like leaving the house every day. It mattered more to me that I was in a good frame of mind and that I could receive the world in a way that was healthy for me and also would put good into the world. I cared more about that than if my hair was done, if my tie was straight, if my car was clean, you know, like everything changes once you have a kid. Like for me, the most important thing every day when I left the house was, am I going to receive everything this kid gives me well? And am I going to process it before responding so that she knows she's been heard and so that she gets what she needs so that she can have a good day? And that's never something a 28-year-old guy thinks about. So, yeah, I learned how hastily I moved through life beforehand. And I learned how quick I was. Like, I'm a Christian, so um, the Bible says, like, be slow to anger. Well, I was quick to anger. I would always get mad by anything, everything irritated me. I was like a little grumpy old man, but, you know, seeing the world through the eyes of a child, it really does. It, it changes what you want from the world. Like instead of wanting the world to just give me, 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 money, immediate gratification, uh, fame, you know, cause I wanted to be an actor. <laughs> like instead I cared more about what quality, Of life there will be on the planet when I'm done like what what is life what is social interaction going to be how are people going to treat one another and so it mattered more to me to like stop and correct incorrect thinking and I hate that like I I still don't enjoy it I don't like talking to someone and having to correct them if they say something like actually you posted something on Instagram and I said, well, that could be kind of offensive. And I sent you a little correction mm-hmm. because I'm like, well, I don't think that was her intention. So I'll, I'll give her the opportunity to see what I what I see. And you did. You responded. You're like, oh, yeah. I guess you're right. But majoritatively speaking, you know, mm-hmm. and like that became more important to me once I started raising a person because you don't want a small mistake snowball into a mountain of wrong game. So yeah, I guess I just learned uh, that I didn't care enough about life before. And that for me, it was an end game process instead of the whole journey.
0: I think you, you your unique experience in having an older sister kind of raise you and then you end up raising a teenage youth kind of altered your version of finding yourself and going on that kind of typical masculine lone wolf journey. Uh, you know, find find the job, get the girl, have your kids, blah blah blah, like the typical package deal scenario. So, when you interact with your own peers, did you did you end up experiencing any conflict in terms of what they believed as what mattered in life and how to express themselves versus what mattered to you? Because you know, it seems like you received this amazing gift of that kind of sacrificial love that you're saying versus other people I would say are seeking to rather than sacrificing to like take. Yeah. Well, there's the,
1: there's this toxic language going around right now of phrases would die. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood. Well, I grew up in two neighborhoods because my parents were divorced in one neighborhood. I was the only white person. And so I saw, What life as a Black person was like because it was surrounding me everywhere. In the other neighborhood, I was surrounded by rich white kids and I was the poor kid. So I saw what that was like. Being on both sides of the coin, given what day of the week it was and what parent was taking me to school, I got to see what forms masculinity in two major cultures that we have here in the United States. It's a very complex answer. I think. Inside of all men, there's this desire to like prove yourself. But when you're a parent, your desire is to succeed at parenting. You are not a part of the equation anymore. So being an alpha male, being the strongest, being the toughest, having the coolest car, those things are nothing if you take parenting seriously. So after I foster parented and the kid went back into her family after they'd been rehabilitated, I hung out with some of my old friends. Some of them I was in a fraternity with. Oh boy, they—they oh <laughs> they were like, "What happened, man? Like, you were like the life of the party. You like, you were the pledge educator. You founded the fraternity. Like, what happened? You're—you're you're so subdued, man. You don't even want to go out to the bars anymore." And you know, I told them I was like, "Well, I quit drinking. I don't smoke. I don't do anything. I." I was a parent <laughs> they're like, well, where's your fiance? She was fun. I was like, Oh, she left me. And they're like, Oh my God. Like your life is so sad, <laughs> but it, it, it did change me. Um, I noticed that my, my truest desires became about growth and personal happiness, which is different from success. Personal happiness is being able to wake up and just be happy and to look around at what you have in your life and be grateful. Success is reaching certain goals. Um, At least that's how we look at it now in the secular world. Uh, But there's a big difference. And for me, personal happiness meant peace, like making peace with things. So there were people I had held grudges against. I mean, my ex-fiance had cheated on me. So Mm -hmm. I had to forgive her and part of my religion is forgiveness. Um, So I actually prayed for her and I prayed for the guy she cheated on me with, which was really hard for me, but it healed me and it made me grateful that I wasn't with that person anymore because what if I had been parenting our own children and she had done that then? how would I explain that to the children? How, you know, so I just, I've started believing in, you know, like the song says, God's plan. I started believing in God's plan more. <laughs> and I started focusing more on what God's plan for me meant and what God wanted me to be like, what kind of person God wanted me to be. And I don't want to get too religious because I don't know what your podcast uh, listeners are comfortable with, but I will say, When you think about yourself as a creation instead of an evolutional being that just happened, it does give you more purpose and value because you believe that there is a purpose and value for your creation. And when you foster parent, you definitely can see and understand the purpose and value of each life, especially a child. And it it makes everything matter more. It really does. Even your bad days, when you get through them, it's it's a victory instead of a growing task because it mattered.
0: Yeah, that's that's beautiful. I think when you think of um, millennials that are parents, whether accidentally or purposefully, I think a lot of the kids end up being a reflection of the parent, which is yeah. kind of toxic. You know, it's like, oh, I'm I, this is a reflection of me. The kid does this versus allowing that, that child to be their own person and learn about themselves. And then I think that's how you end up becoming one of those broken adults that hasn't really fully formed what their purpose and meaning is because they've been following in the footsteps of whatever that expectation was. So moving forward now, um, as you enter new relationships what have been the expectations that have been imposed onto you that you are challenged with today?
1: Hmm. That is a good question. See, I think one of the things that uh, benefited me a lot from foster parenting was I started dating differently. Like at the first date, I don't care. If the person smells good, looks (laughs) perfect, has perfectly bright, whitened, artificially white teeth, Um, if it feels like they're vibing with me and if there's a sexual spark, like those things don't matter. Um, So expectations are very different for me now. Like I've been turned off on a first date by gorgeous women who are literally supermodels because they ask, so how much do you make? And I'm like, okay, that was your first question? Or what do you do for a living? Okay, well, I do this and that, you know. So like, do you have a house? Do you rent? (laughs) So there are those expectations that you can tell their parents have indoctrinated into them. You need a man who will provide for you. You need security. You need this. You need that. That doesn't matter to me. And I think that's why a lot of guys become the, the beefy alpha male that they think they have to be is old school thinking that our parents pushed into us that the man has to be the provider. The woman has to stay at home and be the the homemaker. I'm actually a really good homemaker. I learned that when (laughs) I was foster parenting. I'm great. I'm not the best cook apparently, but I can cook. I'm really good at cleaning and organizing and maintaining a home. So for me, I like... I've dated people who were slobs, and it didn't bother me. I'm not like, oh, she doesn't keep a good house, you know. Um, But as far as my expectations that I or my my views that I think my parents might have passed on to me, I know the biggest fear is, can I trust you? Because my parents got divorced, and I had a fiance cheat on me. Mm -hmm. More important than that, well, the religious term for it is being equally yoked with someone. Do you have someone that meshes with you, that your beliefs are so similar that you know that if it were up to them to make decisions and you couldn't, would life be good and acceptable to you? Would you agree with their choices when you're raising children? Are you going to be contradicting each other all the time or are you going to be a united front? Those things became really important to me.
0: How did you gain trust or understand trust differently?
1: Well, that that feeds into it. So how I go about my dates when I go on a date with a girl is I say, all right, well, let's let's have a non-date first. Let's just hang out and see if we vibe at all. Like, I don't want it to be an interview. I'm sick of the interview, (laughs) you know? So let's just hang out, go do a thing. And after just being casually two people hanging out after we know each other, let's, let's see if we would like to pursue dating. And I did that with a few people and two of them right after the first date were like, yeah, I don't know. You're really goofy, but you kind of feel like my brother or yeah, I don't know. Yes. And no. And it was good because I felt the same way. I was like, yeah, this, this was really fun, but I'd rather just keep doing this and, and not try to date you. And one of those people is still my friend and it's been four years now. So I like to do that. And then trust in that comes from the lack of pressure. When there is no pressure to be perfect because you're just hanging out with someone, you see who they are. And then if you say, hey, I see who you are. I value this, 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 and this about you. I think you're you know, beautiful. I love your smile, you know, whatever other things the romance language tells us we're supposed to tell a person. Um, You tell them affirmations of why you like instead of making them audition for it. That gives you trust. That gives them trust because you're saying, I see you. And when someone sees you, you've been heard. I think being heard is the most important thing when you trust someone because there's no agenda. They're listening. When someone immediately, as soon as you stop talking, already has something to say that only kind of correlates to what you're saying. They're not really listening. They're they're planning their show, their presentation. They usually have an end, like an end goal. But if someone's really engaging with you in conversation, after you speak, they might just sit there and smile for a minute or two and go, "Hmm, oh no, that was really good. I'm just taking that in." Like I had, I went on a date with one girl and she said, "I need to let that resonate." <laughs> and she just sat back and took a couple of sips and like chuckled to herself. And I was like she's listening. This is great. So I think that's where trust really comes from is good communication.
0: Honestly, I don't think I've ever heard a man say it mattered to be seen and to be heard. I think those are like very female oriented thoughts of, you know, on a different uh, perspective in, in wanting that respect and understanding uh, of, her, of her perspective. But when you said that it's not about being on a in an audition anymore and that usually people are not listening they're waiting for their turn to speak and trying to collect pieces to make it appear like they're listening so that they can retaliate and give you their version of whatever they want to talk about and then you just keep you know pinging the ball back and forth (laughs) so I think it's really interesting that you said the audition part because with the whole theme of of this podcast about putting on a mask and presenting yourself in a certain way. Do you believe that that's something that you do like put on a, a, that you're performative in some way? Do you think that you used to be like that and you're not like that anymore? How does that resonate with you in terms of how you view society and how people portray themselves authentically or not in your life? Oh man.
1: This totally reminds me of the Jim Carrey movie, The Mask, because he's watching an interview and this person says, we all wear masks. And then he makes fun mm-hmm. of it and puts the mask on. <laughs> but um, I definitely used to wear a lot of masks, especially when I was younger, because um, my family had a very unhappy, horrible divorce where my sister literally had to sacrifice food for me to make sure I could eat. So, yeah, we were we were told, you know, keep up appearances keep up appearances, keep up appearances, keep up appearances. That was my childhood. It wasn't ask for help. If you need it, if you see something, say something. That was the the culture of my generation. We were told keep up appearances, keep your dirty laundry at home. Don't let people see your dirty laundry. Don't let people know the skeletons in your family's closet. And so I was literally trained by my parents to lie and to live in a, a false state of being. So you know i mean for one thing just growing up and having my own life my own independence taking responsibility for every aspect of my reality now and not playing the victim game and saying well i had bad parents who couldn't provide for me and and because of that nothing i do is my fault you know a lot of people do that mm-hmm. and that's a mask too that's the mask of claiming you're not responsible for who you are you know it's it's yeah it's pushing the blame so for me my mask was a two layered mask one mask was the facade that everything was okay and that i was just a happy fun loving charismatic guy and i had to peel that away and realize that i was in a lot of pain and deal with it but then the other mask was this weird web of lies that i got used to weaving like if you lie to cover things up long enough you get in the habit of lying and it's it's toxic it's poisonous. I remember literally sitting with a friend one day when I was in high school and just looking at him and saying, dude, I'm so full of shit. And he looked at me and said, what do you mean, man? Like, what? And I said, my parents are horrible. My dad's good, but he works too much. So I don't have any time with him and my mom, blah, 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 blah. And I went through and I said, my sister's going through this. She's addicted to drugs and, you know, she got pregnant. And now we don't know what we're going to do and blah, blah, blah. I just, I like started listing all these truths and my friend looked at me and he was like, is wait is this a monologue is this like for a play you're working on wow and I was like no that's me that's my actual life I'm fucking miserable and it was like the saddest and most uh gratifying moment of my teen years because I was just so sick of it and then I pursued a a therapist and that was my first real unveiling of the mask was going to a therapist and saying hey I'm broken like if you want to if you want to remove your masks Go to a therapist and here's the kicker, ladies and gentlemen, tell them the truth. People lie to their therapists. Yeah. They lie to themselves. But yeah, I I know people who have gone to therapy and come out worse. They've come out more narcissistic because they they never told the full truth. So that was, that was probably a huge turning point for me.
0: That's crazy. It's funny how you say like, you know, there was, you were tired of, of lying and, you know, you just got used to, to lying. It turned into just an easy habit for you. But at the same time, there's a lot of upkeep and maintenance in keeping that lie going. Oh, it's exhausting. right? And I think that's the, the tiring part. How was that experience of you sharing your story finally to another male peer? And what would you say are the main challenges of male vulnerability?
1: Well... I think it depends on the setting because there are, again, you know, those people who believe in alpha male, beta males. And then there are other people who believe in grace, healing and growth. So when I talked to the kid at school and told him everything, he wasn't my friend anymore. That was the last time he ever spoke to me. And I can understand that because we were teenagers and that was pretty heavy and I just dumped it on him. So, you know, no hard feelings, but that was a bit much for him. When I shared that same stuff with an adult in church, you know, who was like a mentor type person, he prayed with me and he said, all right, well, you know that that's not who you are. That's who you were. And you can choose if you become that person again or if you grow into someone better. And that really resonated in me. That spoke to me on so many levels because every day we choose who we are. and I mean, that's one of the reasons I think cancel culture is terrible is because people grow. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. Instead of canceling someone, if, if you give them the opportunity to grow and you do so in a loving way, why wouldn't they? Who doesn't want to be better? So, I mean, it really helped me because the one friend canceled me. He was like done yeah. and he left. But this other guy who was more mature, he mentored me. He helped me grow and heal and set my eyes on what was important, which was, who do you want to be?
0: Yeah, that's powerful. I think what's, what we should really um, note here is that you had to do this a couple of times. You can't just like be open and vulnerable to one person and then everyone's just going to accept you and just going to be this wave of emotion and everyone's going to be kumbaya and happy about it. You know what I mean? I oh, think. it feels like it. It totally <laughs> right? feels
1: like it when it happens. You're like, this is it. Now I'm done. <laughs> Whew, and then it's you sober. fall back. You go back into old ways Mm -hmm. and you have to catch yourself. And one thing that's really important, uh, I just want to mention this, is having accountability partners. So if you're going through therapy, if you're trying to change, if you're trying to grow and get past uh, unhealthy habits and patterns in your life, you need people that will check in with you, who you will be honest with. And they will hold you accountable and say, hey, did you go back and talk to that one girl that you knew was no was no good and she was trouble? Or like, are you going to the club and trying to hook up? Like, what, do you, what are you doing that you shouldn't be doing? Because without accountability, everyone slips. Mm-hmm. But with accountability, when you slip, it, it becomes less and less acceptable each time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because now... Now you're, you're hurting your own self, right? And knowing the difference, right? Like you can, you can disappoint people all you want, but when you disappoint yourself, it, it hits different.
1: Yeah. But also mm-hmm. it's, it's empowering to have a group of people rooting for you and it hurts more for men. I think mm-hmm. when your pride gets hurt by people that you're trying to succeed in front of by honestly telling them you failed, it motivates mm-hmm. you to want to do better. Like if I try to kick a field goal and I miss and no one's watching, eh. but if all my friends are like, oh, you can do it. You can do it, man. You can do it. And then I kick the ball and I miss, I'm going to want to run, get that ball and try yeah. again to save face. Okay. And so I think it's good for the healing process to have a group of people that are watching your process, watching you grow and struggle and supporting you and cheering you on. And that's why therapy is really good. That's why group therapy is really good. That's why having accountability partners and friends who actually care about your well-being and not just having fun is essential.
0: Interesting. I think, um, I mean, among women, we've always had a community where we were able to at least express ourselves emotionally and vulnerability was just a norm for us. So we'd happily overshare anything. And if something didn't work out, which often happens, being a woman you can't You just, we don't have enough power or control over things. It's, it's more just like a celebration of like, Hey, you tried and at least you chose yourself today, you know? So there, there isn't that sense of pride. So my question to you is when, when men are then vulnerable with a woman, I think like there's a lot of ammo that they give to a woman to kind of have this new, new power over them because they've given her this information. And now they're worried of, you know, if they don't live up to this or she can throw that back in his face, if a fight occurs or whatever, how would you ask women today to improve that dynamic when they hold that much power over a man's vulnerability?
1: Hmm. Well, I have two responses to what you've said. Okay, One is the answer to your question. And one is something that made me a little sad as you, um, okay. as you shared. You said that as women, you feel that women are allowed to share more openly. And I don't think that's always the case. My sister, my eldest sister who ran away a lot, she ran away because she shared with people who massacred her emotionally. They destroyed her you know, like Mean Girls, if you ever watch the movie Mean Girls, there are a lot of people who you think you can trust until you can't, especially growing up. I don't feel that girls have that safe environment that they think they have. I mean, if you have really good friends, yes, but you're blessed if you do. Like I just think of my sister because she told me she'd shared with people and they made fun of her for having ratty clothes. They made fun of her for, you know, wearing shoes that were a little too big for her because they were obviously hand-me-downs and I wish girls had it better than guys growing up and that they had friends that they could trust. But the truth of the matter is all human beings are fallible and all human beings have shortcomings and all human beings need love. And sometimes we don't get it and we don't know how to give it properly. So yeah, that was just my response to that because I felt, I felt pain for my sister. As you said that you didn't say anything wrong. I was just like, I wish that was always true, but traditionally speaking. Yeah. Gals do support each other more. I have seen that. and I do love it. What was your question again?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I, I love that you said that because when you said it in that perspective, you're right. You know, girls can be really mean to each other. And if you are seeking validation from an external group of people as a signifier of your own self-worth, it doesn't matter what gender you are. The fact is that you gave away that power of your own self-respect to someone else to decide on your behalf, right? right? Whether that's, you know, adults, children, peer-to-peer groups, that's that's really going to make you believe whatever they say about you is true. And, and yeah. that is a, a human error in totality. I think um, in terms of a societal norm, like there's the rule that boys can't cry versus girls, you know, you can act like a girl and, you know, there's, there's other intonations about that problem, but at least they the assumption is that girls are more sensitive and allowed to be more sensitive, at least in, in popular society. And, and if they do cry, it makes sense that they would. Although yeah. there's, there's, there's they're suspicious. strong yeah.
1: for being in touch with their feelings. And mm-hmm. then your question was, <laughs> uh, do I feel like I'm giving ammunition or how do I deal with the feeling that I might be given ammunition to a female when I share that kind of stuff? Yes and no. It depends on trust. It all goes back to trust and feeling seen. If someone values you and cherishes you, and that's why you're with them in a relationship and you're sharing with them, this should not be the kind of relationship that ever turns to that ugliness that you have to be afraid of. You really need to as men, this is me speaking to men who are listening right now, you need to value your relationship as a lifelong investment and not as a maybe. Everyone, I feel, values relationships as maybe the right one, but if you value every relationship as something that no matter what will be a part of your life forever, you're not going to hurt people to the point that they need to retaliate because they're going to know you love them. They're going to know they matter if you eventually realize that you don't want to start a family with someone, that doesn't mean you have to burn the bridge and light the whole town on fire. You can very gently and respectfully say, I don't know if we're really going to make each other happy. I don't know if this would be good for children in the future. I love you, but I don't want to waste more of your time when I know that the clock is ticking and we both want to have kids. So I think in that respect, if you're really opening up and sharing with someone with the intention that you are going to build a life together and things don't work out, hopefully you will have shown that person enough respect and value that they would never want to retaliate against you.
0: I, I appreciate that. I think that's a, that's a great answer. I think it's interesting that you said the difference between, you know, a maybe this is going to work, so I'm going to act in accordance to a potential versus just Going all in, having intentions of what you want out of this situation, being clear and transparent about communicating that, and also having enough respect for both yourself as well as that partner to communicate that when, when things change and things are allowed to change at any point in time.
1: Yeah. Well, even, even if you don't think this person might be the one and you start getting that feeling that maybe they're not the one, um, mm-hmm. they still know you. And you still know them. So that relationship will exist forever, whether it's a relationship that gets strained and you don't talk anymore, or it's one that goes on and you become lifelong friends, that relationship will always exist. Now, it could be a healthy relationship or it could be an unhealthy relationship. It could be romantic or it could be, you know, a platonic relationship, but it's going to exist. Once two items interact with each other, they always have a relationship.
0: Yeah. I like that. It, it's like you can't unknow somebody. You know, it's it's funny when there's like those songs. It's like, oh, you're just someone I used to know. But that's, yeah. that's not really true, right? Thank you so much for this. This has been an amazing interview. I really appreciate it. Isn't it crazy how much we haven't practiced holding space for others? And how much courage it takes to try and try again to communicate your feelings? And how much that's not reciprocated? If you are looking to share your feelings with other peers without judgment and find a safe space to communicate, make sure to check out Tether. Unfortunately, I'm not surprised at all that it took us this long to create a platform for men to build a community that encourages open and honest conversations. Make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to be on the show or know someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs at Miss Amanda Chen on Instagram, and I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of The 100 Masked Men.